Father, thank you so, so much for the amazing world we live in. I think back, Lord, to the the early disciples in the early church, even to your own ministry, Lord, and you had to walk everywhere, and you had to sit in a boat so people on the shore could hear you, and the gospel as it spread went on foot, maybe horseback, maybe by boat, and now by the grace that you've given us to have the technology we possess in our day, the gospel can go around the world instantaneously. I pray, Father, for our brothers and sisters in various places who literally risk their lives to do what we're doing right now. Father, I pray that you would strengthen them and help them and give them your grace and mercy. I pray, Lord, that we wouldn't forget how blessed we are. And I ask as we dive in to the book of 1 Samuel this evening, that you would be with us. That your spirit would be our guide and our teacher. And your voice would be the only one we hear. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Samuel. Now, 1 Samuel, I'm going to get ahead of myself here, so I'm going to stop. Anybody want to guess who the author of 1 Samuel Samuel. Well, that was only one. There's actually three credits. Uh, Samuel, Nathan, and a guy by the name of Gad. Um, And so we'll see that as we move through the book. Uh, Samuel was the primary author, but they were contributors. Uh, We do believe that Samuel wrote the book of Judges. We also believe that Samuel most likely wrote the book of Ruth, of course, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Um, But now, First and Second Samuel. Uh, it was written somewhere around 900 BC. And, and I know I say this almost every book when we start, that we, we have to consider 900 BC was 3,100 years ago. 3,100. 31 years ago, I was a snot-nosed 14-year-old. Now I'm a snot-nosed 45-year-old. It's different. But... 3,100 years ago is is mind-boggling to me. Uh, Of course, it follows the time of Judges, and Samuel is considered to be the last judge since the kings began under him. He was also a prophet, uh, and this is the ninth book of the Old Testament. We've gotten through eight books, 58 to go. 1 Samuel covers Samuel's childhood and the beginning and continuation of his ministry. This includes the beginning of the monarchy in Israel and the uniting of the tribes under the monarchy. As the nation gave in, uh, essentially, to what was peer pressure, they wanted to be like all the nations around them. Therefore, it becomes a transitional period between the judges and kings. So this book covers the first king, who was Saul, Uh, he was of the tribe of Benjamin, and then his treachery towards David, it ends with Saul's death. We will get into uh, David's reign uh, in 2 Samuel. Now, interesting, 
There is a version of the Bible known as the Septuagint. I don't know uh, if you're all familiar with that or have heard of it, but the Septuagint version of the Bible was a Greek, or is, not was, but it's a Greek translation of the Old Testament that was completed somewhere around 270 B.C. At the time, uh, the Greeks were the world-ruling empire, and they, for some reason, showed, even though it wasn't a lot, some favor toward the Jews. And a lot of the Jews were adopting Greek culture and learning to speak Greek, so a bunch of scholars got together and translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek. Uh, now, we still have copies of this, which is pretty astounding, considering that was 2,272 years ago, give or take. Um, but they still exist, which is pretty fantastic. Um, in the Septuagint version of the Bible, First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, and First and Second Chronicles are all one book. They just kind of put it all together. Um, we're not reading from the Septuagint, so we're going to call them by their name. Now, I will give you, I'm going to go off on a, on a short rabbit trail, then we're into, what did you say? It was not a rabbit trail. It's in my notes. It's only a rabbit trail if it's not in my notes. One of the things that's very cool about the fact that we have the Septuagint version is its confirmation of the accuracy of Old Testament prophecy. Um, one of the biggest that the Septuagint confirms is the book of Daniel. Um, the book of Daniel is a wonderful, wonderful prophetic book. But the predictions in Daniel are so insanely accurate, predicting the rise and fall of particular empires uh, and what would happen to them at their demise and so forth, that naysayers and skeptics and people who don't want to believe the Bible try to use the book of Daniel as an excuse to dismiss the Bible, saying that it must have been written later after the birth of Christ, then inserted back into the Bible, be written as history, but then put in the perspective of future prophecy. Well, it's really easy to refute that argument because in 270 AD, or 270 BC, sorry, 270 BC, when the Septuagint version of the Bible was translated, guess what book's in there? The book of Daniel, with all the prophecies as we read them today. Now, in 270 BC, the Greek Empire had not fallen, even though Daniel predicted the fall. In 270 BC, the Roman Empire had not risen, even though Daniel predicted its rise, and certainly hadn't fallen, even though that's predicted as well. So there's some very cool things in the book of Daniel, as well as uh, the prediction of the day Jesus presented himself to Israel as Messiah, the day we call Palm Sunday, that is the greatest prophecy in Scripture, Daniel chapter 9, verses 24, 25, 26, and 27, the, the greatest four verses of prophecy in all of Scripture. And if you've never listened to that, go check out the Daniel study on uh, our YouTube page um, because it's insane.
Now that would be a whole nother rabbit trail, but I'm going to stop. First Samuel, chapter 1. Now, there was a certain man of Ramathaim Zophim, of the mountains of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jehoram, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zoph, an Ephraimite. And he had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. This man went up from his city yearly to worship and sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. Also the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, the priests of the Lord, were there. And whenever the time came for Elkanah to make an offering, he would give portions to Penina, his wife, and to all her sons and daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, although the Lord had closed her womb. And her rival also provoked her severely to make her miserable, because the Lord had closed her womb. So it was year by year, when she went up to the house of the Lord, that she provoked her. Therefore she wept and did not eat. So we're introduced to the family of Elkanah. And I like his name. It means God has obtained. He had two wives. Um, one was named Hannah. Her name means favored or grace. The other, Penina, means pearl. In 1 Chronicles 6, we will see, because of the family line listed here for Elkanah, that Samuel was of the tribe of Levi. And that's important. Because later, we'll see Samuel offering sacrifices. Right? He rebukes. We'll see this later on in the book. He rebukes Saul for offering a sacrifice because he was supposed to wait for Samuel to arrive. And I've heard people ask, well, why was it okay for Samuel to do it? Right? He wasn't a priest. Yes, he was. He was serving as a judge and a prophet, but he was of the priestly family. Uh, we are told about the high priest at the time, Eli and his son Hophni and Phinehas. We are gonna, we're going to see more about them later. So this yearly trip to Shiloh was to worship the Lord of hosts, Jehovah Sabaoth, um, the Lord of heaven's armies, or the Lord of basically all the might and power of heaven. It's really a cool word. Uh, and this is the first time this is used in the book of 1 Samuel. Sorry, it's also the first time it's used in the Bible overall. It will be used 270 more times after this, and then for a really fun bit of trivia, 52 of those 270 times are in the book of Zechariah. Now, you all are thinking, wow, just, he's got these facts. Uh, no, I was studying the book of Zechariah for the morning devotions, <laughs> and so I read that this afternoon. Um, uh, anyways, Shiloh at this time was the religious center of Israel. Um, the tabernacle was there. There was, uh, they hadn't conquered Jerusalem yet. They hadn't built the temple yet. Obviously, that doesn't happen until much later. Um, and so we see then the jealousy and competition between Penina, who had children, and Hannah, who was barren up to this point. This, of course, at that time was quite the cultural uh, curse, but it seems Hannah was probably his first wife and the wife that he actually loved. He probably married Penina just to have kids. 
Penina, of course, mocked Hannah for this. And it got to the point that when they would go up to the yearly sacrifices, that she was doing this just to make her miserable, according to verse 6, and that Hannah would spend her time when they were supposed to be worshiping and rejoicing in the Lord, weeping and refusing to eat. And I put a little note in here. This is just one of the many, many reasons that polygamy is a bad idea. Just one. There's, there's many others, but there's one. Verse 8. Elkanah is going to have an all oh, bless his heart moment. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep? Why do you not eat? And why is your heart grieved? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Right, that was, that was his weak attempt to make her feel better. So Hannah arose after they had finished eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli the priest was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the tabernacle of the Lord. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed to the Lord and wept in anguish. Then she made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a male child, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And no razor shall come upon his head. So we're going to stop there for a moment. So after Elkanah's clumsy attempt, she goes into the temple, or the tabernacle. Now, you have to remember, when we studied the tabernacle back in Exodus, there was the actual standing tabernacle, the, the tent structure that would be in the middle of this large courtyard to make sure nobody got near it on accident. Then out, immediately outside the quote-unquote front door, there were things like the, the bronze basin that the priest would wash in. Right? Then you had outer courtyards. One of those courtyards, uh, and this was built into the temple as well, was the temple of women. Right? So let's pretend this was the tabernacle. All you ladies would be sitting out in the parking lot somewhere. That's as close as you could get. Um, aren't you grateful for Jesus? Well, as men, we were inside worshiping the Lord. You guys stay out there and make sure dinner's ready when we're done. Um, different times. I'm not saying better times. Different times. So this would have been, she wouldn't have been that close. But where she was was close enough, we'll see, for Eli to see what was going on. And during this prayer, she realizes that what she could not get from her husband, she could only get from God. So she cries out to him. And when she does, she promises that son back to God for his entire life as a Nazarite. Now that's important as well. That promise that a razor would never touch his head meant that she was dedicating her son as a Nazarite for life. The same thing that Samson was supposed to be. We'll talk more about that in a minute. So now I have to ask this question. Did God want to give her a son? Or had he withheld that son and then she changed his mind? God wanted to give her that son. I know that for a fact. God wanted to raise Samuel up for his purposes. Right? Because God doesn't really change his mind. 
And her vow was not some deal that she struck with God. Right? Because people try to do that today. All right, Lord, if you just let me win the lottery, I promise I'll buy the church something nice. Right? Oh, Lord, if you'll just... People try to make deals with God all the time. I don't think that's what Hannah was doing. I think what we see here is that he was preparing her for this time. And he had to bring her to the place that the only one she could cry out to was him because he was the only one who could actually fix it. And he was preparing her to enter his perfect will. Now, it is altogether possible that Hannah was a contemporary of Samson because the book of Judges, the book of Ruth, and 1 Samuel would all overlap. Um, and so she may have, all right, I'm not saying for sure, but she may have known about the situation surrounding Samson's birth. And that may have been part of what God used to prompt her prayer. So why Samuel? Well, first off, God was seeking a man to fulfill his purposes. But up to this point, he couldn't find one. Right? We, we went through the book of Judges. We saw what they were like. Even the good ones weren't all that good. Right? One of the, the best of all the judges was Gideon. And what did he do? He fell into idolatry. So he, even the good ones weren't all that good. And so that whole time, God was looking for his man, the guy that would step up and be obedient to him and follow him. And up to this point, he hadn't found one. Ezekiel 22.30, we read something interesting. The Lord is speaking to Ezekiel, and he says, So I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it. But I found no one. And that idea of standing in the gap actually produced a huge prayer movement back in the 90s. You guys remember that? The stand in the gap prayer movement? Because the idea here is you would build a wall, but you had to have a door. You had to have a way in and out of whatever the wall was built around. And then you had to have someone stand there to protect the city, right? You didn't just let people in and out. That's what God was looking for, is that person who would stand between the sinful people of Israel and himself. We're going to find out it wasn't going to be the priests. The priests at this time were extremely corrupt, so he raised up Samuel. I think this also gives us insight into prayer itself. There are many quips about prayer, right? Prayer moves the hand of God. Prayer isn't about getting our will done, but his will done. Or one of my favorites, push. Pray until something happens. Right? We've all seen those. They make bracelets, t-shirts, bumper stickers, all surrounding that. And I don't necessarily want to dismiss them. And there is a certain level of truth to them. But I think Hannah here really helps us understand prayer, just like Jesus' prayer in the garden the night before, or the night he was betrayed, the night before his crucifixion. We know God wanted to give Hannah Samuel. He wanted to use Samuel for the nation of Israel, so why wait? Because prayer is not about directing God. 
It's not about changing God. It's not about bringing about our will. We seek the Lord in prayer so that we can come in line with his perfect will. That's what Jesus taught us to pray in Matthew 6.10. Not my will, but yours be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? Our desire should be that his will is done in our life here the same way that it's done in heaven. Guess how his will is done in heaven? Perfectly. And that should be our prayer. And so often, I think, we get frustrated in prayer, not because God isn't listening, but because we're trying to get him to do something that we want, instead of going to him in prayer and asking him what he wants. It's a big difference. So I think that's the place Hannah came to. Now in verse 12, it gets kind of fun. And it happened as she continued praying before the Lord that Eli watched her mouth. Now Hannah spoke in her heart, only her lips moved, but her voice was not heard. Therefore Eli thought she was drunk. So Eli said to her, How long will you be drunk? Put your wine away from you. But Hannah answered and said, No, my Lord, I am a woman of sorrowful spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor intoxicating drink, but have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant a wicked woman, for out of the abundance of my complaint and grief I have spoken until now. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and the God of Israel grant your petition which you have asked of him. And she said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. So I love this scene. She's praying. Her lips are moving. There's no sound coming out. Eli looks over and goes, Woman, what are you doing here drunk? And she goes, No, no, I'm not drunk. I'm not wicked. Please don't think that way of me. I'm sorrowful, right? I'm pouring out my heart to the Lord. At which point in time, Eli goes, okay. Well, then may the Lord grant your petition. And she says, in the cultural way, thank you. <laughs> may it be unto your maidservant, right? Thank you. Now, I think this is what Paul described in Romans 8, 26 and 27. Because do you think Hannah had prayed for a child before this day? Probably more than once. Probably more than a thousand times. We don't know how long this had been going on. Long enough for Penina to have sons and daughters. So years. In Romans 8, 26 and 27 it says, Likewise, the Spirit also helps in our weakness. For we do not know what we should pray as we ought but the spirit himself makes intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered now he who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the spirit is because he makes intercession for the saints according to the will of God to me this is prayer at its deepest because of her desperation and prayer has to be so much more than just words coming out of our mouth it needs to come from who we are as the Spirit of God is moving within us. And I don't know if you've ever been there. I have on multiple occasions where I just, I had no more words. I, I, I had nothing else to pray. But I wasn't, it wasn't okay yet. And I've, I've actually prayed this from Romans 8, 26 and 27. Lord, 
I don't even know what to ask. So let your spirit intercede. He's so good. He always does. When she goes away, her face is no longer sad. Is it because God gave her a son or even a promise of a son? Did we see that? Right? Did the Lord, like, like with Zechariah, or Zechariah, not Zechariah, Zechariah and Elizabeth up in Luke, right? The angel Gabriel appears to him in the temple and says, Elizabeth's going to have a son. And Zechariah's like, nah. Right? Right? Did, did she get that? You go back to Abraham and, and Sarah. The Lord physically showed up, said, Sarah's going to have a son. She's in the tent laughing about it. So he goes, fine, you'll name him Isaac which means laughter. We don't see anything like that, right? But what happened was not that she changed the will of God. She moved into the will of God. And when she moved into the will of God, that's where we have peace. And this is faith, that God heard her prayer. She went into worship, she moved into deep prayer and petition. Then she came back to worship. It's a great pattern. So we pick up in verse 19. Wow, chapter 1's taking longer than I thought. That's okay. Chapter 2 won't take that long. You all have heard that before, right? Then they rose early in the morning and worshiped before the Lord and returned and came to their house at Ramah. And Elkanah knew Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. So it came to pass in the process of time that Hannah conceived and bore a son and called his name Samuel, saying, Because I have asked for him from the Lord. Now the man Elkanah and all his house went up to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, Not until the child is weaned, then I will take him, that he may appear before the Lord and remain there forever. So Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Wait until you have weaned him. Only let the Lord establish his word. And the woman stayed and nursed her son until she had weaned him. Now, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with three bowls, one ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, and the child was young. Then they slaughtered a bull and brought the child to Eli. And she said, O oh my Lord, as your soul lives, my Lord, I am the woman who stood by you here praying to the Lord. For this child I prayed, and the Lord has granted me my petition, which I asked of him. Therefore, I also have lent him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be lent to the Lord. So they worship the Lord there. So they go home. Hannah gets pregnant. She has Samuel. She refuses to take him up to the house of the Lord until he is weaned. And Elkanah agrees with her. Now, in our society, weaning a yearish, right? Sometimes a little older, sometimes a little younger, sometimes a lot older, but that's just weird. Right? No offense to anybody listening, but if your child's five, stop. Please. Please. It's a good thing not that many people listen to us or I'd get letters. Um, but back then, that was not uncommon. That they would, they would nurse a child until they were four or five years old. Um, they did this partially um, because it was a cheap food source. Uh, not that it seemed like Elkanah was having a rough time but also partially because of the old wives' tale uh, that a nursing mother can't get pregnant again. Anybody ever heard that old wives' tale? Really? Oh, it's a fun old wives' tale. There's folks in our church who figured out the hard way that it's not true. Um, 
And there is some scientific backing to it, just so you know, because a, a nursing mother produces hormones that makes it difficult for her to get pregnant. But um, it's not impossible. Once she's weaned, she fulfills her vow. She takes him up to Eli and says she has lent him to the Lord for all of his life. That word lent there means given, right? Because it wasn't a loan. She wasn't expecting God to give him back at some point. So I do want to make a quick note before we move into chapter 2. And that note is about comparing Samson and Samuel. Uh, by the way, Samuel's name means heard by God because God heard Hannah's prayer. I think that's correct. So let's think about Samson and Samuel. Both were born to barren mothers. Both were born miraculously. Both were to be Nazarites from birth. Both were meant to be used by God. Both were judges in Israel. Samson failed to reach his potential. We talked about that a lot when we were talking about Samson. As we move through first and into second Samuel, we'll find out that Samuel did not fail to live up to his potential. Huge difference. Samson was overcome by sins like lust and greed and anger. Samuel was not. Chapter 2. I love the first 11 verses of chapter 2. And Hannah prayed and said, My heart rejoices in the Lord. My horn is exalted in the Lord. I smile at my enemies. Right? A little jab at Penina. Right? Oh, yeah? Because I rejoice in your salvation. No one is holy like the Lord, for there is none beside you, nor is there any rock like our God. Talk no more so very proudly. Let no arrogance come from your mouth, for the Lord is the God of knowledge, and by him actions are weighed. So there she kind of warned poor Penina. The bows of the mighty men are broken, and those who stumbled are girded with strength. Those who were full have hired themselves out for bread, and the hungry have ceased to hunger. Even the barren is born seven, and she who has many children has become feeble. Right? I love this prayer because there's, there's some really cool prophetic implications that we're going to talk about in a moment. But Hannah is praising God while kind of taking jabs at Penina, which is kind of cool. In my mind, right, it's the wrong thing to do. We don't want to seek revenge. But sometimes when we see other people seeking a little bit of revenge, it's kind of satisfying. Um, the Lord kills and makes alive. He brings down to the grave and brings up. Verse 7. The Lord makes poor and makes rich. He brings low and lifts up. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the beggar from the ash heap to set them among princes and make them inherit the throne of glory. For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. For by strength no man shall prevail. The adversaries of the Lord shall be broken in pieces from heaven. He will thunder against them. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength to his king and exalt the horn of his anointed. Then Elkanah went to his house at Ramah, but the child ministered to the Lord before Eli, the priest. So Hannah gives this prayer celebrating God and his strength and his holiness, and it reads like a psalm. But what's so interesting to me 
um, is this means a woman did write part of the Old Testament. It's only what we have is a few verses, uh, but it's so cool that God used her in that way. Um, second, this spontaneous worship of Hannah has prophetic value. So a horn, which is mentioned several times, is a symbol of power and strength. She starts by saying that she rejoices in your salvation. Speaking of God, this begins a prophetic path that leads to Jesus. She talks about God as our rock. Jesus is the rock. We see this throughout scripture. She talks about God's ability to kill and make alive, to tear down and raise up. This is a prophecy of the death and resurrection of Christ. It says he raises the poor. This is what Jesus does for us. Then there's a prophecy of end times judgment. And then the end of this whole thing says that God has exalted the horn of his anointed. And this is why that's so important. Because the word here for anointed, well, it shouldn't be anointed. It should be Messiah. That's the word in Hebrew. I won't try to pronounce the Hebrew version of it because I sound like I have a hairball when I do. But it's the word Messiah. So what he says here is that God will exalt the horn of his Messiah. So now go back and read through this with that in mind. We're, we're not going to read it all. But Jesus is the rock of our salvation who died and rose again so that he could lift up the poor, then end times judgment will occur, at which time Jesus will be exalted before all of creation. It's the gospel. And a prayer from Hannah that was a dig at her sister wife that God used to give us prophecy. Oh, I love the Bible. So we see the beautiful continuity of scripture in places like this. God used Hannah to prophesy about Jesus' life, ministry, his death and resurrection, and his exaltation. Hannah is Samuel's mother, and God used Samuel to anoint David as king, and it is through David's line that the Messiah would come to Israel for all of us. I love the Bible. It's so much fun! And anybody who says, ah, then it's just a bunch of written by men or, or a bunch of stories. No, it's not. The divine fingerprints from Genesis 1-1 to Revelation 22-21, it is impossible for this to have been put together by men, human beings, without the divine influence. Just absolutely impossible. 66 books written down by 40 different people over three different continents over a period of 3,000 years. Yet one continued account from beginning to end with no contradictions, no discrepancies, and absolute agreement between people who never met each other and didn't even live at the same time. Yeah, that was an accident. Note the sarcasm in my voice. Verse 12. Now, the sons of Eli, remember I said the priesthood earlier had become corrupt. Now, the sons of Eli 
were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged fish hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot, and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Because remember, the priests were supposed to live off of portions of the sacrifices. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. Wait a second. Is that what was commanded? And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires, he would then answer him, No, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Therefore the sin of the young men was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. So you, these guys were so corrupt, right? They were, they were to get their portion, but it was supposed to be a random portion from the sacrifice while it boiled, and then they were supposed to burn the fat off of it before they ate it. But Phineas and Hophni, no, they were barbecue kings or something. They said none of that. They wanted the choice cut of meat and refused to burn the fat. They were taking what was the Lord's. And then if anybody said no, they threatened them, saying that they would take it by force. And it got to the point where the people didn't want to go up and make sacrifices anymore. They abhorred the idea of doing it. And I think it's terribly tragic whenever a person who claims to be a servant of God uses their position to manipulate and take advantage of the people to enrich themselves. 1 Timothy 3 gives us the qualifications of a pastor. And among those qualifications is a person who's not greedy for gain. We get that same exhortation in 1 Peter chapter 5. James 3.1 says, Let not many of you become teachers, for you will receive the stricter judgment. I've met too many people throughout my time as a pastor who were pastors for the wrong reasons. And I would not want to be them on Judgment Day. Verse 18. Great little commentary. I love this. But Samuel ministered before the Lord, even as a child, right? So he was probably four, five, six at this point, wearing a linen ephod. Moreover, his mother used to make him a little robe and bring it to him year by year when she came up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. And Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, The Lord give you descendants from this woman for the loan that was given to the Lord. Then they would go to their own home. And the Lord visited Hannah so that she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. Meanwhile, the child Samuel grew before the Lord. I just love this little commentary. And once again, we see, of course, it was God's will for Hannah to even have more children. He was just waiting for her to come into his will. Verse 22. In verse 22, Eli was very old. What a great testimony. And he heard everything his sons did to all Israel and how they lay with the women who assembled at the door of the tabernacle of meeting. So not only were they stealing from the Lord's, these sacrifices that were meant for the Lord, well, they were committing sexual immorality with the women who were coming up to the door of the tabernacle. Um, now, culturally, this happened a lot among the false religions of the nations that surrounded Israel. They had things like temple prostitutes, and part of the worship was to go up and have sex with one of the temple prostitutes, men and women. 
Um, but Phineas and Hophni were just being, um, well, jerks, for lack of a better word. Don't worry. We, we won't get too far into 1 Samuel before they get what's coming to them. But they, they were even, and, and you have to wonder, these women were maybe married? Or maybe they were young women who were waiting to be married? Um, whatever the case, just using their position to manipulate, it's just so, so wrong. When they die, we're, we're going to be excited about it, just so you know. So he said to them, why do you do such things? This is Eli. For I heal, hear of your evil dealings from all the people. No, my sons, for it is not good. Report that I hear. You make the Lord's people transgress. If one man sins against another, God will judge him. But if a man sins against the Lord, who will intercede for him? Nevertheless, they did not heed the voice of their father because the Lord desired to kill them. And the child Samuel grew in stature and in favor, both with the Lord and men. So what we see here is very clearly, God wanted to use Samuel because of the corruption of the priesthood. And so Eli tries. At least he tried. What should he have done? Now, according to the Levitical law, he should have killed them. As the high priest at the time, it was his responsibility to hand them over to the people for their blasphemy. But he didn't. Even though he recognized the evil in his sons, he didn't do anything about it. Now, Eli's going to get rebuked in verse 27, so I'll wait just a minute. But what I do want to point out is the, the, this testimony of Samuel. And what I can only think of as childlike faith, right? Samuel didn't know any different. His mom said, you belong to God. And he said, okay. Five, six years old. And Eli said, but you're going to serve in the temple. Okay. Right? What did he do? We don't know. And he wasn't old enough to make the sacrifices. So maybe he brought water. Maybe he swept up. I mean, we, we don't know what he did. But whatever he did, he grew in stature and in favor both with the Lord and with men. And I absolutely love this faith. Jesus talked in Matthew 18, 2 through 5, he called a little child to him, set him in the midst of them, and said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you are converted and become as little children, you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven. Therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever receives one little child like this, in my name, receives me. And I think what's so wonderful about childlike faith is that it's simple, right? We try to complicate things. It just trusts when we actually try to come up with reasons to doubt, it asks honest questions. I love it when kids ask me questions about God or about the Bible. Right? Does God have a wife? No. Okay. Right? They don't, they don't get upset about it. They don't. How did God create everything? You know? I don't know. He's God. He can do things we can't. Oh, okay. Right? They don't care. They don't want to argue. They don't want to overcomplicate it. They just, they just want to believe. That's what we should do. Verse 27. Verse 27. Then a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? But I did not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, 
and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? That's quite a stern rebuke. Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever, but now the Lord says, Far be it from me. For those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house, so there will not be an old man in your house. And you will see an enemy in my dwelling place, despite all the good which God does for Israel, and there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of your age. A nice way of saying they'll die young. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house, and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread. And say, please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread. What? Oh, just WWE Smackdown time. Right? Here we have a man. He's unnamed. We don't know who this guy is. We don't know if he ever shows up anywhere else. But he showed up here. And he prophesies against the wickedness of Eli's sons and Eli's own wickedness for not doing anything about it. We've talked about that from Romans chapter 1, right? You have the people who commit sin. And then the people who approve of that sin are equally guilty. Look at these accusations. Eli honored his sons more than God. This is idolatry. Right? We, we often think of idolatry as the little statues, but anytime we put anything before God, it is idolatry. He says, For those who honor me, I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. We've talked about this so many times, but we see throughout Scripture the principle of sowing and reaping. Right? People want to sow sin and reap blessing. And that doesn't work. You sow righteousness, you reap blessing. And this is not because we're trying to earn God's favor. It's, it's just how it goes. But when you sow sinfulness and disobedience, well, you're going to reap that as well. He says several times that there will not be an old man in their house. Now, Eli was an old man, but he was the last old man. All of the other members of his father's house died young. The sign that Hophni and Phinehas would die in the same day, Eli dies that day as well. And so ends the priesthood for a time. But Samuel will be saved. And then there's a prophecy about Jesus Christ. God will raise up a faithful priest to serve him and any of the people left at Eli's house will become beggars. 
So even though God would restore the priesthood, this is a prophecy of Jesus, and, and we should know this because we've been studying the book of Hebrews, because both in Hebrews chapter 2 and in Hebrews chapter 6, Jesus is called the faithful priest. How cool. Did you know there was this much prophecy in the first two chapters of Samuel? It's good stuff. Next week, we'll get into Samuel's first prophecy. Right? Just a kid. And even as a kid, he steps up to the plate and obeys God. I love it. Um, until then, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. May it be a lamp unto our feet and a light to our path. May we walk in the power of your word. May we walk in the grace that you've given us to understand and be obedient to your word. Help us, Lord, to never be like Eli, approving of sin. Help us, Lord, to never be like Hophni and Phinehas, taking advantage of people. Help us, Lord, to be like Hannah, to submit to your will, to rest in your grace. I pray, Lord, for the rest of our week. We have a couple more days. I pray, God, that you would bless it, that you would fill us with your spirit, that you would just help us over the next couple days to do the things that we need to do and to do them for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.